You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Okay. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this mTalk event, The Good and the Bad Architect. It's so fantastic to see so many people here in this final week of events at the M Pavilion. To begin, we would like to acknowledge the people of the Woiwurrung and Bunwurrung language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet tonight. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands where anyone may be listening to a recording of this event. I'm Anna Jankovic and today, together with my colleagues uh, Helen Duong and Dr Peter Brew, it is our pleasure to be convening this talk tonight, The Good and the Bad Architect. To introduce us in brief, each of us are practising architects and lecturers in architecture at the School of Architecture and Urban Design at RMIT University. We have practised in offices large and small across a range of different project sectors, scales and contexts, and for the most part alongside our parallel roles as educators. Currently, we each direct or co-direct our own practices and undertake research into the discipline and profession of architecture and its expanded field. Over the last four years, we have together coordinated, lectured and taught the architecture professional practice course area at RMIT Architecture. And through this subject, we have been developing an inquiry into our profession. We consider that our position within academia offers a privileged view outside of the profession to be able to critique this subjectively. Um, oh, sorry, objectively. <laughs> Big distinction there. This is the context in which we bring this conversation to you today. Historically, this subject has been taught as a simulation of architecture practice for students to acquire certain knowledge and competencies. It has since developed into a critical inquiry into the nature and effects of doing architecture and our interest in what is caused by their being architects. And with our Master of Architecture students themselves a step away from entering the profession and embarking on practice, this mode of inquiry is also a navigational one for students to consider their future roles and contributions to the discipline. So now it's with great pleasure that we introduce our two guests joining us on the panel this evening. We've got Kirsten Thompson and Stefano Scalzo. So both Kirsten... So both Kirsten and Stefano have been long-standing contributors to the RMIT Architecture Professional Practice course, presenting lectures and have greatly influenced the discussions that we have on the subject. So Kirsten Thompson is a principal of KTA and adjunct professor at RMIT and Monash Universities. She's a committed design educator and regularly lectures and runs studios at various schools across Australia and New Zealand. In recognition for the work of her practice, contribution to the profession and tertiary education, Kirsten was elevated to Life Fellow by the Australian Institute of Architects in 2017, and in 2022 was appointed Member of the Order of Australia. 
A member of the OVGA Design Review Panel, Kirsten is an advocate for quality design within the profession and the wider community. Recent projects that demonstrate her passion for civic space and heritage include Broadmeadows Town Hall, awarded the 2020 AIA Victorian Architecture Medal, Bundanon Art Museum and Bridge, awarded the 2022 AIA New South Wales Solomon Award for Public Architecture, and the Sir Zelman Cohen Award, and Queens and Collins, which was awarded the Melbourne Prize. Stefano Scalzo is the Executive General Manager of Infrastructure Planning at the Victorian Department of Health, where he oversees the Health Infrastructure Forward Pipeline. He leads a team of experts providing authoritative advice on the conceptualisation of projects across the full spectrum of physical and mental healthcare settings. Stefano is also committed to design-led innovation and is particularly passionate about the role health campuses play in promoting healthy lifestyles and the renewal of our cities and towns. In 2015, Stefano was awarded a prestigious 50th anniversary Churchill Fellowship to research the design of high amenity mental health facilities developed over multiple levels. And in 2020, he graduated from the Australian Major Projects Leadership Academy, an initiative of the Victorian government in partnership with Oxford University. So for the format that we're going to have tonight, we'll be presenting a series of concepts and questions that outline the inquiry and discourse we have been developing through the professional practice course area at RMIT Architecture. Together, we'll dive into these in a Q&A with our guest speakers, and later we'll open to questions from you, our audience. We are going to first define what we mean by the good, and subsequently talk through the following questions and concepts. Firstly, how do you define a good architect? How do you distinguish a good person from that of a good architect? How do you define good architecture? And lastly, how can we encourage the good in architecture? Tonight's talk, we hope, will be one of many. So for us, this is like act one, the good and the bad architect. What makes good architecture or a good architect? Architecture is often judged by aesthetics, but this does not always distinguish one architect from another, nor a good one from a bad one. What does the licensure, the regulations and contractual systems that surround architecture cause? How do these legal mechanisms allow architects to be accountable, have a duty to the public and guide decision-making processes regardless of whether being good or bad? We want to redefine or at least clarify the good of architecture and the way that we see architecture as a framework through which to affect change or any other functions in the profession that we perhaps don't currently recognise. We see the profession as a construct that requires robust and productive critical discourse to evolve and to do good. Now on the good, I'm going to throw to Dr. Peter Brew. Okay, um, okay so I, I think, so um, I think, as Adam said, we're interested in the good and the bad of architecture, um, what it is, what it affects, and how it does, and and how it does what it does, um, but also what it does, but also what it, what what it does and what it does not do, and what it needs to do, um, to, what it needs, what it needs to evolve to do to do. Um, to architects, architecture is an activity, something that is done through practice. This is acquired through experience and training. In, in this way, the good architect is one that, is, that has acquired the necessary skills of, the, of an architect. 
Um, this is different to describing architecture. When we describe architecture, we're looking at it as a subject. Similarly, we see great value and importance in describing we see great value and importance in describing practice to understand what it is that architects do and the impact it has on the subject. Um, I guess we, I guess the first type of um, uh, architecture is. Oh, I'll come, we'll come back to it. The perennial challenge for practitioners has been to develop the, the right concepts and a language to, to recognise um, what we do, and. And, and I guess the, the, the thing about that is to, to, to put it into our own language um, and, and in turn to describe... And the, and the real challenge, I think, for us is, as a profession is to describe the value of our work. The task of describing practice forces a discussion that we, that we would argue is not readily found within the, within the context of the, of the profession. Hence, we're interested in having a discussion that differs markedly from those of the member organisations that represent architects um, of the appointed boards and the authorities that govern architects and even the schools of architecture that develop and disseminate disciplinary knowledge. And occasionally there are issues or crises that arise in the, quote, normal science of architecture practice, um, causing us to inquire, review and revisit the laws and codes um, that are the framework to our profession. When issues occur, does our profession have the concepts of architectural practice that it needs to better use and to develop this professional framework? Um, to allude to one case, Novation is a recent example that caused us to question how we think about and our relationship to the client. This was not so much about the responsibility of the client, but as to who the client is. The consequences of the persons to whom we have a duty of care have been highlighted recently in many numerous cases involving catastrophic building defects that have been presented before the courts and parliament in both Australia and abroad. In the notable case of the La Crosse Tower fire that we often refer to with our students, it was thought that the process of in the process of novation that the client had been the developer and had then become the builder. The member Justice Woodward found that in novation, the obligation to the client is not altered Given this, we would also say that the client was neither the developer, perhaps, nor the builder, but rather the occupants described by the building codes who on the night of the fire fled the apartments and escaped the fire down via the fire stairs. Okay, so, so this, 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 what Annie just read out is like a, a sample of, of, um, of like what we think is like a, a, a generic problem within... Um, professional practice um, discussions. Um, so within the course, we've actually traced the sort of origins of the person in the fire escape, like, like when they first appeared in the codes, and, and, and also sort of tried to look at the exact nature of that, that relationship, like, like how is that, what is the nature of that, the obligation, how is it acquired, where does it exist within the various codes and laws? Um, and I guess one of the people that that we cite is um, a guy called John Cook, who, um, who who was actually an architect that worked for um, Madigan Briggs Torzillo, actually on the the, um, the the gallery in Canberra. But also he then became a, a lawyer and he became a leading practice. And so he had this to say with respect to the the, uh, the architect's client. Um, he says. The easy way out, um, this is with respect to who is the client, the easy way out perhaps is to assume that the building regulations, statutory planning, schemes, heritage legislation, structural codes and the regulations of professional practice 
by statute, take care of the public interest. Um, for this, we need to recognise that the law... For this, we need to recognise that the laws exist and, that they apply, and who they apply to. The Architects Act is a law that applies to architects. It requires all architects to act in a certain way to attain greater good, and it enables them to do this by granting licence and authority to act, in the, to act in the service of architecture. Now, these questions are being posed as provocations, and then we're going to throw to our guests um, to elaborate. So... First question being, how do you define a good architect? If we consider again that a good architect is one that has acquired the necessary skills of an architect through a framework of competencies that is defined by the Architects Accreditation Council of Australia, the AACA, and the Architects Registration Board, um, then all licensed architects having met the requirement of registration, um, or requirements rather, um, are thereby the good architect. Whilst it may be apparent in practice that there are many differences between us, in fact, we are all tainted by the same brush. Adolf Loos once suggested that we distinguish between the good and the bad architect, saying that before God, there are no good or bad architects. In his presence, all architects are equal. And therefore I ask, why is it that any architect, good or bad, desecrates the lake? Although at the time Loos was forming a critique on the prevailing aesthetics and preoccupations with style that had emerged during the 20th century modernity, early 20th century modernity, he is also suggesting that we are all guilty of sin, of doing bad, because we affect the lake in the same way. We transform and destroy the beauty of the lake and inevitably spoil the nature of a place. This quote also suggests to us that even though we've been conditioned to think of how we are different from each other, we are in fact all the same. Today, it is common for architects to differentiate themselves and their work from other professionals and indeed other architects as their roles within the practice um, and their roles within practice or, with, or within the profession at large. It is commonplace for architects to hold different titles within a practice to distinguish their role and rank, often justified to provide client groups with the appearance of well-structured and hierarchical team and project management, or as part of their profile to seek out new clients and align values. However, this differentiation, we would suggest, within and outside of a practice, gives little insight into the decision-making expertise and values that the architect brings to a project. So, to some questions. It seems easier, Kirsten and Stefano, to communicate our value through specialisation or a particular expertise. Kirsten, how or perhaps when do you think it might be necessary or productive for us to differentiate between ourselves? Maybe be that on aesthetic differences or through specialisation and unique expertise? Mm, thanks for asking me first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Such a, a difficult start. Um, hmm. I, as you were talking about good or bad, what is it? The good and the bad architect. And I was thinking, uh, because I seem to be an eternal relativist, actually, um, I was thinking of the better than and the less bad architect as one way into this... Um, question. Um, and I think that's probably because inevitably I see what we do. Can you still hear me? It sounds like it. I think that Kirsten's mic might be having some issue. Is that better? 
Hello? Is that, no? Yeah, I might just... Is that working now? Yep. Okay. Um, lost that fabulous thought I was on a roll with. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Um, so, yes, things being always messy and needing to be negotiated and moderated and synthesised and so on and accommodated. I know you've heard me talk about that idea of accommodation as an essential part of it. And so this is a long way of saying the capacity of person and architect to manage or relate in a situation is, is fundamental. So I don't know if this is really answering it, but I, I think the question of relating, whether it's through built form or whether it's through the people in a team, the people in your office, your client, the world, the neighbours and so on, I see as, um, as fundamental, but I'd probably say to the person as well as the architect. That's a start. This is going to be, this is going to be rough, I think. Anyway, yeah. I might. Do you want to try? Yeah, try that one. Uh, Anna, perhaps if I come, I mean, it was a provocation. So um, I think for me, I think it's the wrong provocation. I think it's it's absolutely fine for architects to differentiate themselves in terms of specialisation, uh, experience, and God forbid, rates per hour. Um, and I know as a so-called government client, I would not expect a first-year graduate, for example, to do what a senior principal of a practice can do. And I think it's it's um, somewhat misleading to think that just because we're architects, we have to throw good business sense out the window. Um, and as a government client who has an enormity of responsibility, not only to um, Victorian taxpayers, but ministers and others, um, the idea that... Um, that somehow we can't sift through requests for tender and teams uh, and somehow pick a better team over another is, is, is somewhat scary because uh, without that, we can't navigate, without some of that differentiation and experience and, and what have you, we simply just can't navigate who's going to be the best architect for the job. And therefore, in, and if we fail that, then we fail our first responsibility as a client to get the best possible outcomes for Victorians, which in no small part is the appointment of the appropriate architect for a project. I might um, throw a slightly different question around the same idea of differentiation and specialisation to Stefano. You've been, I understand, a long-time advocate for engaging architects on a variety of healthcare projects um, that are not necessarily... Uh, just healthcare planning specialists. What would what what was the decisions around diversifying the kinds of architects that can contribute to the healthcare sector, and how was that justified, or was that um, a difficult argument to have with your wider client um, groups? Um, it, it, it's fair to say that that is an ongoing argument. Uh, and it's fair to say that I've lost a lot of skin over that one and I don't want anyone in this room, <laughs> Pavilion, uh, to in any way think that it's some sort of glorious 
glorious task because it hasn't been and um, and I've personally had to weather a lot for it. Um, but I can say that at its core, um, a good architect, if we want to characterise it as such, a good architect should be able to, irrespective of the specialisation of the typology, um, uh, equip themselves in a professional manner that brings not only the vocation of architecture but the practice of architecture to bear on a problem. Um, but I'm under no illusions that um, certainly in my world, which is the health world, there is a level of specificity um, which is so uh, resistant <laughs> to design in some respects that to find the design opportunity requires a collaboration between architects and specialists. So, I'm not, so I kind of won the argument in some instances, not because I said, oh, out with the specialists, in with any, anyone. Um, it was that middle position that I occupied, which is to say, well, actually, uh, there may be benefit of architects collaborating with one another because what I saw was that in just going to specialists, we missed at least half of what architecture can contribute to um, health environments and to focus just on architects who probably could do um, the qualitative aspects, we missed out on finding the right place to put the suction port, um, which could potentially kill someone. So we had to get both right. And, and, I, <clears throat> and I think on that, um, just to pick up on that comment, the, in fact, sometimes I would argue our lack of specialisation um, or specialty knowledge is, can be in the best interests of a project in the terms of um, first principles thinking that can sometimes be brought to bear on a project when you're a specialist. And I mean, we find this with our housing projects, actually. You can become so relentlessly um, worried about matching your BADS compliance that you've meanwhile forgotten to rethink on a broader level what the regulations actually are determining and whether they should be challenged. So, and that is that comment before about leaving it to regulation, working within the regs, and that is it. Um, I was in a conference last week, and I think it was Anamahuma Kundu who said, uh, gravity is a law that's indisputed, this was her example, but uh, building compliance and a whole host of regulations that we all work to are in fact constructed things and can be challenged. And I thought that was a really good point that um, there are many things we take for granted in being a competent professional architect, which I think could and should be challenged because they're loaded for all sorts of reasons. So that was one thing to say. Um, but the other thing, going back to not being a specialist, and I think the point you made and a case in point of something that we've been working with, um, has been on a, a new care facility which has had ourselves working with um, Anthony Clark from Bloxus as a as a knowledge as a specialist and also the people within um, who have developed a model of care and really our job was to synthesize that stuff to spatialize this model and that didn't require us to be health experts per se but it did require us to understand how to spatialize intentions that are outside of architecture so 
And I guess the hidden question in there as well, which you've, you've both actually sort of arrived at um, and covered, was sort of can we still argue for the generalist architect in any way? And I, and I like that sort of um, you touched on first principles, Kirsten, um, because I think we've sort of questioned through this framework of um, inquiry whether or not having sufficient um, professionalisation and expertise through the way we become professionals and become registered, whether that... that um, is is an argument enough for the, for the generalist architect to be engaged in in a whole variety of different projects? Yeah, I'll go, I'll go first on that one. I think it's it's interesting you raised the statewide child and family centre because it took a generalist architect to translate the model of care in a sense because there was no precedent for this particular type of building. Um, sure, there was an expert between the people with lived experience in this instance and the families and the children to be able to take their words and translate it in a way that an architect would be able to understand. But I'm under no illusions that what Kirsten's been able to achieve to then take that recipe and turn it into a spatial something, that's magic. And um, certainly in a world post the Royal Commission into mental health where the commissioners were very bold in wanting to create a whole new type of environments for people with mental illness, putting aside acute mental health settings, and which we all know about in forensic settings. There's a whole series of new types of service provision that require architects such as Kirsten working potentially with a collaborator to interpret into new types of facilities. And I think that that translation requires generalists as well as specific as, as people with specific skills to work collaboratively. But it could be that the specific skills are outside of architecture too. So I think that can be uh, the big difference. In fact, I think it's probably a pretty good model for a lot of what we do. We are good generalists, able to spatialise. Um, and I think architects as generalists are very good ones are very quick to synthesise and take or glean what they need from an incredible diversity of information sources. In fact, I'd say that is a, a core or fundamental to what we do. Very quickly scan a lot of stuff and work out what is core or essential to um, spatialising the needs of the project. And you can be outside of those needs to understand how they might be Met, so. and, and I'd go as far, and, and I'm being a bit, um, I'm simplifying things to say uh, spatialised because that's only part of it. Um, but I think what Kirsten raises is an important point. I can't imagine any other profession, certainly in, in my world, and I imagine it would be the same in court services and other complex environments. There is no other profession out there that can actually take a complex series of client requirements, technical, spatial, performative, um, and turn them into a coherent narrative for a building that government will invest hundreds of millions of dollars on. Um, so if you put the value of a project, um, you can attribute most of that value to the narrative that the architect came up with right at the start. Um, and I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to over glorify it, but it, it, it is, someone has to, but I don't think there's any other profession, um, and I'm not trying to dis, you know, um, disparage 
the engineers in the room, of which we have many, or the project managers, but they, they are contributors to a narrative which is ultimately finds its, its home in, in, the, in the architect. Um, so we might uh, go on to the next provocation, which is how do you distinguish a good person from that of a good architect? So we talk about the good architect as being defined through the Architects Act, where the Architects Act and regulation stipulates that a natural person who is eligible to be registered as an architect is a person of A, good character, B, has been engaged for no less than two years of practical architectural work and has attained a standard of professional practice satisfactory to the board. The architecture profession is defined in part as having a productive regulatory function with a series of codes and conduct and standards by which the architects act on behalf of the profession. The architect holds responsibility and duty and an authority to act upon which trust in their services is formed. This can often be a unique or singular position for the architect in projects where other project team members are not similarly licensed or guided by ethics and the need for a duty of care because they have this power and because this trust is given to them. We go on to define this as the Architects Act and Regulation outline this duty to the public and the profession whereby the architect conduct must engender confidence in and respect for the profession of architecture. That is to say that it goes beyond the individual person. So we like to think about this concept of the architect as a persona and that the, the architectural profession as a collective that offers a useful method to differentiate that of a person as an individual citizen from that of an architect. We suggest that the good architect is the architect who practices through this persona as the architect, meaning that they consider their actions as a representative of the entire discipline of architecture and the entire collective of architectural professionals. They seek the greater good in architecture beyond themselves and the client, acting responsibly and ethically on behalf of others and for the good of the city. So again, perhaps the first question to Kirsten would be, I know. Should we be considering our collective identity over our individual one? Is this distinction of the individual architect versus what an entire collective of professional architects could do, preventing us from having a proper conversation about the impact that we have as an entire profession on society, be that good or bad? And bad being some of the examples that we talked about at the start of the talk and then the good in some of the projects that you guys have been talking about. Hmm. Okay. Um, yep. Uh, again, I don't know why I find these ones really hard to start with, but when you were first asking this question and the good character comment, because good character does seem of a language of another time. It's sort of an interesting terminology and I think we can all probably imagine the vision of a good character from when it was written. Uh, I think we might, some of us, challenge what it means to be a good character, what, what that ideal good character might be. Anyway, um, and I was also thinking about that, that it, it made me think sometimes in the office we talk about um, how we show authority and sometimes to take the authority of the architect means 
to disagree at times in a productive sense as opposed to what we call the convivial architect um, where the convivial architect might be where it is all about um, keeping a client happy in an obvious sense of that moment but which might long term not actually be the best way for the project to be. So some discomfort of raising a problem or, a, or raising a challenge to um, in the moment of the, of the practice and therefore being a bad or a difficult architect may, may be necessary to ultimately be a good architect. So it's the point to which um, sometimes our agitation for this bigger guardianship of the overall good outcome of the project may mean a slightly different role. That's, I mean, of course, that's a way of being ethical too, but that's one way in, I don't know. I think that's really interesting. Um, and I swear I'm not wearing a cardigan underneath, but I am a bureaucrat at the end of the day. And there's a saying in bureaucracy, uh, frank and fearless advice. And I think that aligns with what Kirsten is describing. There are times where you just have to rise above um, the the situation and, and provide that frank and fearless advice sometimes to a minister, which might make you uncomfortable, might make it, it might be incredibly uncomfortable to say, well, actually, no, that is not the right way of going about this for these reasons. And I don't see that an architect in their capacity as a good architect is any way doing anything different to that if they're aligned with um, the foundations of the vocation of architecture, which are ultimately to provide the best outcomes for people at the end of the day. And although Kirsten and I go to different conferences, last week I was at the Health Summit, um, and it's, it was interesting that here in Victoria we're having a debate about how do we shift the outcomes for health from not the number of procedures um, completed, whether it be hip procedures or what have you, but what are the outcomes for people? That, that What are the outcomes that people value? And I think when you wind it back to a values-based outcomes conversation, architects at their core can really hook into that because what we're doing, or what I think we are doing as a profession, is attempting to improve people's lot. Um, and so in a curious kind of way, when our, our moral compass as good architects in that frank and fearless advice is to achieve those best outcomes for people. Um, so I think in, in, a, in a way there's, um, there's something very simple about, about that, um, but, but sometimes it gets lost in, tr in, in translation. You anticipated um, kind of this question, Stefano, um, about when you mentioned value, um, and I was going to ask, um, having practised as an architect yourself, but also from the perspective of a government advisory body and one that's focused on health, um, no doubt you can probably recognise frameworks that exist outside of architecture. Within architecture, we have this duty of care, but can you recognise others um, more broadly that support these principles of the greater good or, or um, similarly contributing to the good of the city? Well, um, <clears throat> I think it's important, and I know that you guys research this, and I know in my role in the department is 
to advocate for projects up to funding. So once projects are funded, I'm out the door. I hand them over to people like Kirsten and others to deliver them, the Victorian Health Building Authority. But my role is really to take projects from a data analytical point of view all the way to advocating. And there is a structure, as you know, there is a structure for curating our thoughts as to why projects are the way they are. And there's a very rigorous investment logic map that needs to be progressed, that we need to identify the problems we're looking to solve, the benefits that would come out, uh, that would reside if government were in, to invest in these projects. Um, and it's interesting to me that those first two chapters of a business case are not written by architects, they're actually written by economists and service planners and others. But then you get to how do you achieve those benefits and you can't not get an architect involved uh, at that point because they are the ones who provide some of the solutions to solve those problems and achieve those benefits. Though that as, a, as an armature for thinking through problems and for thinking through how to invest in architecture is, um, you know, is, is probably the best that I've ever seen. And it's a rigor that I think all architects in their, certainly in their education should get exposure to um, because it's, um, it's a type of way of translating what we do as architects for the greater good of society. And there's a, there's a structure there and I think everyone should know about it and everyone should go through it. But Kirsten. Mm. Um, just following on from that, <coughs> I think, I think it, because I imagine part of that is is being able to outline the value, and I mean value in a very wide-ranging sense of a project to justify its support and so on. Um, I think that's where uh, we're now getting onto value systems and that's when architecture gets complicated and that's in part why codes are a neat but I think incomplete way of assessing if something is meeting values. Um, and one thing I would like to see more of, and that project again is a good case in point, is that we make claims of the value this will deliver. Uh, that's our starting point as the brief. And then as architects, we develop that. We make further claims about how design moves are going to achieve these outcomes for the good of um, immediate users, neighbourhood and so on. I would like to see us finding ways to do the research to f try and um, record whether those promises of value are actually delivered or experienced by the eventual things. And I think that's a really big missing chunk of stuff to, um, to really make this case that we are acting for the good of. How do we demonstrate that? It's a lot of it is the vibe and as a more concrete outcome, I think that would be advantageous for everyone, actually. And as a learning thing, and it probably goes to, um, I'm going to try and preempt one of your questions, but um, this, this question of the claims we make, uh, a brief makes a claim for the betterment, the architects and the design often make claims for betterment or good outcomes. Sometimes not all those claims are met, and unfortunately, the failures of meeting those claims are often the things not shared or spoken about because of 
all the other obligations we have to clients, confidentiality or insurance and so on. So that's it's probably leading into another um, issue about, um, yes, when we do or don't meet the for the good that we claim we're here to, to do. Yeah. Could I, could I add to that? Because I think in our world we call that the post-occupancy evaluation. Um, and you'd think as a as a department, we would do that. You'd think as a sector across Australia, we would do that. And I know there are many here who work in the health space, including Jeff here. Um, and it's, it's, it, always staggers, it always staggers me that we don't have an agreed template for how to do that. And I think that that's partly resultant of the fact that somehow we've forgotten how to ask a question, a behavioural question of how did that built environment or those design decisions actually make it better for you. Um, everyone can answer the question about, well, that design reduced hospital-borne infections or it, um, it ensured that there were less people spending time in EDs, um, but no one can really say that window uh, and that light uh, and that amenity actually improved someone's perception of well-being. And until such time as we can bring it right back down to that simplicity, um, I think we're, there's, a, there's a suspicion in those claims made by architects, by clients, that somehow architects, architecture is going to make it okay for everyone because there's no evidence. And in, particularly in my world, surrounded by a group of clinicians who are used to, you know, blind trials, you know, they're like, right, okay. Until you can show me the evidence, I'm not really yeah. going to believe what you say. Shall I go to number three? Okay, well, that's probably a really good extension to this next uh, provocation. How do you define good architecture? The client might define good architecture as property, investment, or as a product that has been ideal the ideal representation of their aspirations and vision. What transpires, therefore, is a perception that architecture is defined by the paying client's desires or brief. Um, architects often define good architecture through a system of recognising exemplars based primarily on aesthetics, for example, through the Institute and other professional organisations award systems, or through what is published in industry magazines or what is shown on television and discussed in the media. As a result, this has linked the good aesthetic-driven architecture with good aesthetic-driven architects. However, defining good architecture from bad forms a subjective question on perceived um, forms a subjective question on perceived beauty or aesthetics. We argue that local architecture, um, local architecture and design media has perhaps failed to consider architecture beyond this. And rare is it that a critical architectural discourse is included as part of architecture's promotional material geared to styles and trends. Um, when we discuss good architecture, we are probably in the context of this course and the profession first talking about it of it in the context of where it first appears. That is in the Charter of the Royal Institute of British Architects, or REBA, which states, the Institute and its members are to act for the good of the city. We recognise that the link between concepts of beauty and good architecture have always existed throughout history and continues to be a useful criterion, but we argue that we need to be having another discussion on the good project, which values the process of architecture and its potential to achieve the greater good. 
With this as our understanding, the work of the architect is to con conceptualise how these two are linked to each other, which goes to your last point, I think, Stefano. Um, how much, Stefano, do you think the government as client does place value on good aesthetic-driven architecture? Well, if it were up to me, I, I wish they would spend more, uh, certainly in health, um, putting aside all the big PPP projects, which one could argue that the procurement methodology is driving a particular aesthetic outcome. For the smaller projects, Kirsten's perhaps with the exception, um, there's, it's frightening how, can I say it in public, ugly some of these projects are. Um, you know, and I look at the ambulance program across Australia, uh, across Victoria, and I think there are some real, there's nothing fantastic in that program from an aesthetic point of view. So I think we've got to be careful that there, there's an assumption in what you're asking that somehow aesthetics permeate the client's conversation about architects. And I'd have to say that there are plenty of examples across Victoria which would suggest that the client doesn't think about architects and aesthetics. In actual fact, it thinks of aesthetics as gold plating a project um, and that that should be avoided at every, at every turn. And that the benefit of an architect is really to do the documentation, get, it, get the project variations to a minimum, do it on time and on budget, and off we go. So I think it's, in my mind, it's, it's, it's worth as, um, playing up to the fact that we're interested in aesthetics because sometimes the client just isn't. So um, maybe an extension of that question so if we think about residential projects, it's a bit clearer who the client is. But because you represent so many people, it would be good to hear how they might define good architecture. If it is not through aesthetics, then what is it that they're looking for? Is it a good investment, um, a good representation of their aspirations and vision, a good event, a ribbon cutting event? How would they describe it? And how do you translate that back to architects? Yeah, it's interesting, part of what I did when I was going through the Australian Major Projects Leadership Academy was write a dissertation, who is the, who is the client for health uh, infrastructure? You can, you've got everyone from uh, the building authority to uh, the broader department, to the minister, and ultimately to the constituents of a, of a seat within which a um, piece of infrastructure is being built. So it's hard to pinpoint exactly who the client is. Um, but what I think transcends that is um, this issue that if the, the built artefact will be there for many, many hundreds of years. Um, so in a sense, it doesn't really matter what the client thinks. The architect needs to rise above it and think about the city and think about the legacy of the project, even if at every client meeting they don't necessarily talk about that. Um, that they may have a very prosaic conversation with the so-called client about where does the medical services panel go and how should the cubicle sit next to the other cubicle, but that the purview of aesthetics and design as, um, can be kept as a quiet conversation amongst themselves um, and that they can um, very much achieve the betterment for society uh, through that project. Mm. I was... Uh, I was just thinking um, of examples where I think in part what you're describing is where you have an authority as a client, which is different from 
the user, the end, or can be, can be different to the user. And I was thinking of something like, for instance, a social housing project which we're working on at the moment. And um, on the one hand, a project like that, which we evaluate for the neighbourly good that it does uh, in, a, in a suburb where um, open space, public realm, it can contribute and enhance that in ways which get piggybacked onto and embedded into the project. But then the sort of conundrum of end user um, satisfaction or enjoyment, however we want to describe it. I know something we've stumbled on on a project like that is the need for, on the one hand, equity of space provision. So each unit having the same amount of measurable amenity according to codes. Uh, but then also knowing that, um, that because it's a very diverse community, there are a lot of different needs that can't possibly be accounted for. So there is a degree to which the generic suppresses and is maybe less responsive to a range of needs. So there is this kind of flattening of, of needs, if you like. And that, that is one of the sorts of conundrums which, look, frankly, I think architects just have to resolve impossible problems most of the time. That's what we do. And that's been something we've wrestled with. This, um, this idea of common good or good is assuming that we know how to determine who this person or group is and how we deliver on that. So... Um. Speaking about the common good and some of the things that you've talked about in your lectures that you give in our um, subject, titled Ethics in Practice, you describe the task of the architect as somebody who works through difference as both a process and a product, mm -hmm. and that architecture is the medium for navigating difference with intent. Mm -hmm. So it'd be nice for you to elaborate on how the definition of good architecture or what is good in the project might change through the design process on your projects and how the eventual form of that building has accommodated these different goods or yeah. the goods that different people might perceive in the building and that these various clients end up being represented though they might have had different needs or visions for the project to begin with. I'm thinking the client, even yourself as the architect, even the builder, even everybody who's involved mm. in the project. Mm -hmm. um, look, I know this is... Uh, this is something we've thought quite a bit about and it's partly come out of that ethics talk, which I think is probably what you're referring to and where I use the terminology of accommodating or accommodation as a key imperative of good architecting, not, yeah, well, architecture, architecting, we can distinguish. But by that I mean, I think in the past, and perhaps this goes to speaking of the mode, the means by which we do what we do, in terms of relationships, um, by I think accommodate in the past has sometimes been seen as a as a passive act. You were very accommodating, um, um, and I think what we find we're doing a lot of the time is actually taking a multitude of parties, tensions, um, con details of the context. Uh, and finding ways to uh, actually respond to all of them through the right fit 
of a special model. I'm going to say that special model again, not explain this terribly well, but, um, but to do that with intention. So you're still managing to pull all together these different aspects and keep them in a direction that we think is going to achieve that good outcome. Um, and sometimes I think we've described it, more recently I've described it as a flocking. If you think of birds, and I know flocking has been used as an analogy for architectural design process before, but I do think it's quite helpful if you think of multiple bodies potentially moving in very divergent uh, paths at times, and then attempting to, without telling any of them that they they don't have the right to have that difference of opinion. It's trying to um, something wild happening <laughs> with the light before behind. So uh, it's it's trying to fire. I keep going back to rightness of fit between all of those tensions and differences. And I think further to that, there's sort of a temporal dim a dimension to it as well. That um, we find that sometimes. I've seen architecture where there is an idea that happens very early on and nothing will get in the way of that, no matter what um, what questions or challenges come up to it along the way. And that I do advocate for the need to have a, a model that is flexible enough to, and just slowly um, gets more and more targeted as the parameters become clearer and their hierarchies become clearer, but you're not, um, how can I put it? You're not, uh, you're not ignoring the differences or the tensions are there. And that's, and that's where I think um, that is, that's a mode of, of being. Yeah, that's a very long-winded way of answering that, sorry. I like, to ex I like to expand this with the students when we listen to your talk by saying that the good in that architecture emerges, that definition of that good as the project is designed, yes. discussed and goes through the process of being, um, you know, going through architectural services. Mm. But that it is quite different at the end to what it was at the start through necessity yes. and that that is our role in yes. giving that project a definition. Yes, yes. I think, I mean, emerges is an important word in that. And I, you know, we've had moments where we've had something that we think is going to go that way and then a key insight can happen at an unexpected time. Uh, yes, it could throw us off course, but if you are faced with the challenge of uh, shutting down um, that insight, which is an important one for whoever has raised it, uh, I think that's not the right thing to do and you do need to find a way to stay alive to it. Now, having said that, there's always a thing where there are conflicts that appear to be so contrary to where most of the project is trying to go and that management of it is part of what we do as well. It's design management, my goodness, there is just, that is our, that is our, um, our job, really, uh, hugely, yeah. So I might go to um, our final question, which is how can we encourage the good in architecture? So this is a bit of a long one, so bear with me. We argue that distinguishing the good from the bad architect has focused some of the conversation on some restricted viewpoints and facilitates perhaps competition in fees, differentiation between architects, and that we are suggesting that some of these hierarchies and structures and subtle differences from individual architects and practices have 
possibly not benefited the collective of architects. It signals to the paying client that perhaps these differences that we have are mainly about organisational structure or how we're going to do the project. We argue that the good architect has a duty to the discipline and the profession of architecture as a discipline of knowledge. And if we could recognise ourselves as a collective, then we would be concerned when issues occur within the profession that affect all of us and not just of us individually. And Kirsten, you alluded to that earlier. Such problems like underbidding, unfair contracts, misconduct, etc. And we would embrace this crisis as a productive process. Perhaps we would declare these publicly and offer a collective resolution and explanation. Perhaps we would highlight these problems and reflect on how the profession itself has contributed to these problems. We might evolve our frameworks and practices to prevent these events from happening again in the future. We might do this by engaging with, changing and affecting the laws and bodies that govern architecture through the boards, through research, through reports, through surveys, through conversations with one another, noting that there are confidentiality and um, insurance issues around that. We might also rethink the way we communicate what it is that we do in marketing and advocacy to be perhaps less about program, stylistic and aesthetic differences and more what is common across all architects that you engage on a project and what is standard and necessary so that architecture as a profession could exist. We're suggesting that perhaps competition between what we perceive as the good and bad architect has not actually fostered innovation or a variety of ideas and viewpoints. We're suggesting that where exemplary works are awarded, that if these innovations could filter throughout the profession, we could consider how this innovation gets passed on to and who stands to benefit. The sorts of things that we're thinking about here are, you know, a particular process that gets patented or a particular bit of expert knowledge that some architects might have in a particular field that nobody else has. We would consider that perhaps if we shared this collectively, it would contribute to some sort of continued research and that over time, a paradigm shift would occur. We take this from the concepts of Thomas Kuhn's theory of scientific revolution that crisis and continual updates are just part of the natural progression of a functioning apparatus or profession in pursuit of advancement, which is part of the Institute's charter. We're suggesting that professional knowledge would be shared, tested and used widely, and that would separate the individual and the entrepreneur from the collective and the professional. We suggest that the good project values the process of architecture and its potential to achieve the greater good rather than aesthetic-driven outcomes, noting that aesthetic-driven outcomes in some industries are lacking or some sectors are lacking. <laughs> then we would claim to be advancing the profession and architecture. So this speaks to having value frameworks that are different to perhaps how architects might define them. And so in a lecture that you give to our students, Stefano, about procurement and major projects, you talk about, as you hinted earlier, about the value creation and capture framework as a measure of success for public projects. Perhaps you could elaborate on the importance of this document and how it might be useful for the, us to rethink the value of architecture in that format or to provide a different um, perspective on the things that we do. Thanks, Helen. Um, I think 
what's interesting is I'm not sure I entirely agree with the construct that the individual versus the collective, and, and God forbid I'm as surprised as anyone that I'm actually going to defend the individual uh, case here. Um, but I do think there is a case to be made in the profession of architecture, perhaps separate to the vocation of architecture, for differentiation, for specialisation, for hierarchies. Um, so that goes right back to the original to the original uh, point that I made. But getting back to value creation and capture, I think that speaks somehow to the benefit of the architect to think beyond the project for the betterment of the city. Um, and so where do we use it in government? Obviously, in once again, in my area with the health master plan, it's very interesting and many of you would know this, most hospitals certainly in the 50s and 60s and right through perhaps to about 15 years ago were rather introverted introverted um, places. Um, they had very little connection to the cities that they um, supported. But what became interesting was that government realised that there are hundreds of millions of dollars being spent to build these facilities. So it seems somewhat like a missed opportunity not to catalyse all the adjacent land around these facilities, i.e. create value, and then capture that value through selling that land often to uh, developers to, to build what they want to build. And of course, the PPP picks up on this in, in its as a procurement model. But I think what's interesting uh, for us as, as designers that suddenly the discipline of urbanism, the discipline of the architect as a master planner transcends just putting adjacencies on a site and thinking, well, how does it connect to that laneway? How does it connect with that building two blocks away? What does it do in terms, if we get these connections right, what does it mean for the space between that thing over there and us over here? And how does government's investment of $100 million, say, actually deliver $400 million worth of value? And I don't think that there is another profession out there um, that can actually think of those urban design issues as well as architects and urban designers. Um, but that what is interesting in that value creation and capture framework of governments and treasury is that it, it puts a dollar value on that. And that dollar value speaks volumes um, across society. Uh, and I think that that is the thing that elevates the profession in a way that so many other things talking about aesthetics necessarily doesn't do um, other than in certain sectors. So I think it's an incredibly important um, framework. It's, it's intrinsic to every business case that is written that government wants to know, well, what is my return on investment if I invest in this hospital? what value am I creating and how can I put a dollar value on that? Um, so it's, no, it's, it's not by chance, for example, that all the recent hospital announcements are near railway stations that government invested in about 10 years ago. And it's not by chance that all the major research institutes want to locate themselves near those hospitals. And, and, and over the next five to 10 years, it won't be any surprise that the big housing build will curate itself around those hospitals for key worker housing. So that's government thinking across all the things that can influence um, and using that value creation and capture framework to guide itself and guide better development. And I think it's incredibly powerful for architects to be part of that conversation, and many of them are, at that early part 
of the design process, particularly in that in that master planning phase. Um, slight different question to for Kirsten. I think if we're as a profession to sort of think about advancing architecture, as as the sort of the charter tries to um, set in place, and and I guess for us we sort of um, posited that this to, to start to um, see paradigm shifts, seek innovations in projects and have those filter through the disciplinary knowledge in the profession, um, we should be having perhaps more of a, a collective discussion, um, not to discount that, that um, point about the individual architect, but also um, to share knowledge. Yeah. Where do you see opportunity yeah. where we could be sharing more knowledge? Yeah. Um, I think there's a there's a few ways. Uh, I mean, there's sort of obvious ways that, for example, um, projects become circulated or disseminated somehow. So, and as especially projects that are seen as exemplars, and so they can set a precedent. Which, and I always think the useful thing about a precedent is that it goes into the knowledge bank we have as a discipline, and we can all draw from that for future projects. So I would like to think that what we do in practice every day is develop projects that, even if quite modest, have some insight that others can um, learn from and add to their future repertoire to draw from. So in a basic way, that's uh, and that's in part an interest in typology for that reason, because of the sorts of changes and things that might add to that mix for future reference. Um, but the other thing that I think would be really useful for that knowledge bank as well, and this goes to the question of failures, the good and the bad, or the, the, the things that worked well, the things that didn't work so well, it probably does come back to post-occupancy, actually. You know, I was just thinking, sitting here, imagine if every project was required to have that, some recording of the uh, pros and cons, or, you know, what worked, what didn't work as an insight that others could use and just say that had to be publicly available. I don't know. Um, but because there are an awful lot of repeated errors probably that we make because we didn't know that someone had already done that and it didn't work and so on. And in the same way, positive things that are done and which others could learn from. So there's some of the things I think to... Um, I mean, that's more building outcomes, I think, in terms of conditions of procurement and contracts. And uh, again, um, and this goes to an, a, a practice looking after itself rather than looking after the discipline more broadly. We, if we could add up the amount of legal fees that every office probably spends as they negotiate a contract over the same clauses over and over again. It is just insane and we all do it. Let, let's say we're all bidding for a project, five offices, five offices will have the same discussion with insurers about that clause, you've got to get that out, we'll all spend money on it. It's just madness and um, I still can't believe why we cannot have better advocacy as a group around some of these things that just persist and um, honestly seem to only be keeping lawyers happy rather than anyone else. So things like that. And I would say the more, just one other thing to say, 
advocacy around things we don't agree with I think is really important and I think the practices that are more resilient financially, if you like, um, or in terms of uh, their, their established position uh, are in a pretty good position to do some of that advocacy. So I would say if you have that, it should be used for this greater, greater good. Yeah. Um, what's interesting that's emerged out of this conversation is, Stefano, you're talking about shifting the focus in your area of work to aesthetics. <laughs> and Kirsten, you consistently shift the conversation in every format that you um, interact with, a way, you know, recognising that aesthetics is part of the things that we do, but to value that in a different way, to translate that, you know, whether it's a, a post about a building, it is this looks like this because, or this celebrates the user's needs to do this, or this history, to change the conversation so that it's much broader. And I would not have expected that that's actually how we've Well, there's sort a of reason why we try to get Kirsten to design our buildings. Um, and I think, and, and that's not trying to say that Kirsten is just a, an architect who designs aesthetically beautiful buildings, but it's it's to say that we value that at a client. Like if you put yourself in the in the shoes of someone who suffers from a mental illness and they're in an acute unit for 21 days or 45 days, it actually makes a difference if the architect has thought about what you can see through a window or the colour of a wall or how you've arranged the lights. It actually makes a difference. So to somehow um, default to specialists who will put the light exactly where they put it in the last project and paint it the same shade of white that they painted every 15 projects up to that, misses the point of what it is that architects can contribute to projects. So I think um, when I talk about we need more aesthetics, I'm not somehow saying we need more aesthetics so as we can be on the front cover of AA. I'm talking about we need more aesthetics that can actually engage with the uh, objective of care and the objective and, and providing that amenity so someone can actually feel better. So that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. Yes, and I must admit, when you use the word aesthetics, I'm assuming a, a broader understanding of the performance of a building and its gamut of things that it needs to do. So I sort of took that um, for granted, actually. Uh, but there was something else I was going to say on that and I've forgotten what it was. Um, the doing, yeah, I can't think. Can't think. Well, gone. well gone. my question Jet was... Bags kicked in. I feel like you're very adept at having a particular conversation that we need to have even though um, you might have used the, you know, even though you might have used an image to describe that in the first instance, that inevitably the conversations that you facilitate through these images go beyond what is being represented, which as the architects viewing these um, posts or seeing this, um, we can understand, but perhaps the client might not have had they not um, read your explanation I think I was just going to say that how how we communicate 
is important, yes, to get away from a conversation just what things look like, of course, and more performative or what they feel like. Um, I think more and more the the feeling of space is a really important thing to be able to explain to people um, to anticipate in the making of buildings. I did just want to say too, sorry, it's just a little clarification, but... Uh, when Stefano is saying, Kirsten, obviously it's an office full of people doing these projects with me, so I'm certainly not doing them by myself, as might be intimated with, with that. Um, there's been a really good team on, on that one. Um, so Lloyd McCarthy in particular, who I think is battling away with the defects today, I saw. So <laughs> anyway, um, but yes, how we, how we communicate and of course changing how you communicate depending on who it is you're speaking with, what matters to them and how do you talk through what this thing might be like in ways that matters to them and, and you'll get very different um, there's a lot of different people with different positions um, that you need to try and anticipate. I do think, again, a sign of a good architect is the capacity to anticipate the needs of the multitude of users for something. And um, that's, that's a very big part of it. Mm. Just mindful of time, we have about 15 minutes left. So I think we'd like to now open up the conversations uh, to questions from the audience. Uh, there is a roaming mic, and I think we've got a question in the front here, ready. Um, so, yeah, please raise your hand, and one of the M Pavilion team members will help you out with the mic. Um, Kristen and Stefano, both of you in your intros um, spoke about or you said that you're on the Victorian Design Review panel. And I wondered if you could talk about your thoughts on the importance of design review in um, helping good architects to understand, for, for their architecture to be um, better understood perhaps by clients and perhaps to curtail or, or dampen the, um, uh, or push back some bad architecture that sometimes comes apart. Perhaps I can start with that and just a point of clarification. I'm not actually on the Victorian Design Review panel, but I was uh, invited to attend. Um, I was invited to attend as a government representative on a recent design review. And what struck me uh, about the uh, VDRP is um, in this particular instance, which is a, it's a significant government investment, uh, was just the, the careful way in which the VDRP were able to open up opportunities beyond architecture or beyond the object for uh, and bring that to the client's awareness. And I think that that was incredibly important, um, particularly for this project, which is in a significant precinct within, within Melbourne. Um, and I, I, to be honest, Jeff, I, I, um, I had faith in the VDRP because my experience, to be clear, as a government employee when we use the VDRP is it's a bit of tick the box, it's in the project management um, framework, it's done, the team don't have any teeth and just get on with it. Um, so it was reassuring to see 
both the calibre of the advice provided and the fact that in that instance, the client was listening to the panel and was likely to act on the advice that was being provided to them. Uh, so it was, it was, uh, it was a heart, it was, um, it was excellent to see that happen. And I think there should be more of it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think more would be good. Um, and I have actually seen, you know, sometimes I'm sure all the architects in the room will be familiar with this. You have been saying the same thing ad infinitum to your client group. And because they are so familiar with you, uh, you've kind of lost your, um, not lost your authority, but it takes sometimes the person outside of it to to be heard. And so we have found that I've been on both sides of it. I've had a lot of our projects before it, and I've also been on quite a lot of panels. Um, and I would say my experience has always been that uh, it has been better for the process and it has helped reiterate um, things we were concerned about, a better outcome by having an external party also say that or um, advocate for that. I will say too, it's um, largely I've seen the architects who go before, it's, it's quite a, I hate using the word humble, but there is something about going before your peers and having to front up and be open to feedback, sometimes more negative, uh, is is probably quite a useful thing for us all to have to be reminded of, actually, that um, you might have a blind spot, things that you just haven't seen. And we don't always, we haven't always taken up all of the opportunities the project may have. And so I think it's useful there. And I think it's quite impressive that people put themselves up for that. It's the return to the crit, actually. Um, the worst part is being the witness to a conversation about the project you've been on and having to shut up and just listen for half an hour while you witness that. But interesting. Hmm. Another question at the front. Thanks, Saman. Hi, yeah, working. I have two really small questions. Uh, do good architects do good architecture? And is Melbourne done by good architects? I want look just before we got onto the good architect or not thing, and I had that um, debate in my own mind as to um, process and outcome. And if you have a terrible pro process, but an extraordinary architectural outcome, does that justify the terrible process? That was one thing. And the reverse of that, a great process where everybody in it says what a wonderful experience and is very happy, but then let's say our peers say, but it's a dog. Um, I just, I was sort of going through that conundrum in my mind. Um, we would hope that the process is seen as, um, you know, in all the ways I've talked about, alive to the inputs of others, the consideration of others, and is a decent building. Sometimes uh, there may be um, design change you might 
uh, how can I put it, you might, for the sake of a relationship, you might let something go. And I'm thinking, for instance, on site, you know, even today, a question. The builders put in a whole lot of window frames, the wrong wrong specification, um, and you think, it's a small design thing. Is it really worth creating the trouble that this will create, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There's little decisions like that every day. So it's the process versus outcome and what's right, you know, my right to insist on that. It's all been documented, but I'm not sure if it's exactly the right outcome for the builder. These, I don't know if that answers your question about Melbourne. In the subject, we would suggest that because we, you are a registered architect with the backing of the entire profession, that you have that judgment call in that instance to put it in its totality and decide for the good of that client, that project, whether it is the right moment um, to have that authority or not. Um, and that's what's given to each and all of us when we decide that we are being registered, that we are performing, that we're part of a collective. I know, but, <laughs> but it's still, it's a, it's a, I mean, this is where I think it's always this messy balancing act. It's, you know, and sometimes I, there's like a, there's weird ledgers that get kept on jobs almost, which is an unwritten ledger sometimes. So it's like, no, nah, we've let that one go, but this one we'll insist on. Or this one matters more than that one, uh, but that's going to be a real pain. So all of that sort of messy balancing is a big part of what we do. And this is what I mean, that sometimes you might have let go the perfection of the object for the sake of maintaining the relationship and seeing that, you know, yeah. So you get you get the gist of what I mean by that, even if all the architects would be behind us, but yeah. The, 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 one, the one, one thing that question does raise is that, that when we're talking about architecture, that um, I guess what, we mostly see as buildings is like the effect of architecture and that the, the actual, the distinction between the process and the outcome I think is, is, is really interesting because I think we would argue that the process itself and, and, and a lot of the conversation today, you know, even though there's kind of a, a um, sort of kind of idea that we're talking about specific buildings or, or an aesthetic outcome, but the actual process itself is the thing that architects actually design and affect and that the buildings are kind of caused by that process and I think that the, the, one of, the, one of the, the issues that we're really interested in is could we reimagine that process and, and you know Stefano talking about the um, investment logic system or the, this process of, um, of how long is a project and, and do we do the research, you know, do we feed, is there that feedback loop between, you know, um, is that gain or benefit or that good that was claimed at the outset of the project, is it actually attained at, at the end? So, so a lot of things we're interested in is actually, if we were to redesign architecture, you know, like it, it possibly wouldn't be the object, you know, that, um, you know, that we give the architecture award to, it would be the, you know, the, the sequence of events that lead up to it. Or, and and, and it, more than that, it would be the possibility of that, like it would be the financial model. Like for instance, we do Aboriginal housing appallingly. Um, and part of that would be, 
you know, that the object might be to look at exactly how that project is described and how we, how we might change the way we imagine doing that project. Stefano, we spoke the other day about um, the word design, which changes so much in every context. So I think stemming from that also, design in the context of your department is used interchangeably every day um, for a whole number of things and, and probably goes to what Peter's saying about um, the design process and, and designing the process. Look, the design, I think we, we joked about it last week, design in the department means everything from a model of care to a service, how services will be distributed around Victoria. And it's almost like the last thought that anyone has about design is actually to do with a building. Um, and, it's, and it's always curious to me as an architect within the department to, to see that happen. But I think I'm just going to go perhaps a bit provocatively against the panel here. And I, and I think there are good and bad outcomes um, and I think that there are good and bad architects and um, and the, the two are linked um, and I was reminded by a colleague in the in the government architects office and there might be some Germans here so I hope I don't do this um, saying uh, I, I do it, this saying an injustice but the, the Germans apparently have a saying whereby a surgeon will often say process good patient dead um, so we've done everything that the patient, that the process should be doing, but the patient died. And I think there's a, something about that. I don't particularly care. Um, the object, the artifact is what matters. Um, and the artifact is the thing that does or doesn't, um, support a wellness model. It does or doesn't achieve the outcomes of the client. I'm not particularly interested. Of course, I need the architect to fulfil their professional obligation uh, along the way. But, uh, but in, in some instances it is, and perhaps more than we think, it is secondary to the legacy left by that architect in the artefact that happens to be there for the next 30, 50 years. And in some cases with hospitals much longer and you wish they would have been blown up. But so I think the bad architect leaves a bad legacy um, and then Getting back to your earlier question about Melbourne, I think that there are as many <laughs> bad, bad outcomes as there are good ones, uh, but I'm not sure whether that has anything to do with the process. And I quite frankly couldn't, um, obviously as a, as a government bureaucrat, I have to say, yes, I'm interested in the process, but ultimately uh, I'm very much interested in the legacy that, that, that those architects leave. Yeah, no, look, I would, I would ag agree with that. And I think I was probably talking about uh, not just yeah no not justifying a dead patient, uh, but one that is um, well yes so I, I I do think there are times when we um, do worry about the wrong things sometimes and what we might worry about is not necessarily what will be the thing that will be valued long term and leave that legacy for others so. That's, that's a judgment thing sometimes. But. Maybe to touch on the doctor, um, yeah, we, we, do, we do often try to parallel through analysis the architecture profession with other, other professionals. Um, so we have said in the course, for the doctor, the greater good is to affect public health by treating a patient's illness, but for the architect, the greater good is to affect the city through each architectural work or project, which maybe I think does go to your point, Stefano, about the object perhaps being um, 
as important as, again, describing the process more intently. Yeah, it's interesting you raise that, Anna, because at this conference that I went to, which is not as glamorous as the one that Kirsten went to, but there was a lot of conversation around the physical determinants of health. Um, And anyone who looks at a health atlas of Melbourne will know that the highest burden of type 2 diabetes or obesity just happens to correlate where the worst urban design outcomes are. Um, And it also happens to correlate um, where there's less amenity. And so, uh, and I know Billy Giles Cordy talks about this at RMIT and at other places, but uh, much better people than I can. So there is um, a correlation with the design outcomes and the legacy we leave uh, or the lack of involvement that we have in some of these environments. And what ultimately is there is the better good for society. If you say that health is um, intrinsically something that we should all be, better health is something we should all be striving for. And just to be really annoying, I'm going to say that I would say that the things that, um, I would say that the good process, noting that design is through it is the means through which you get to this outcome. Um, My experience is that when that is a better process, it will be a better outcome. So the legacy will be better for having gone through that more responsive um, and alive to others' differences um, process. So, yeah. Mm. I'm glad we have I'm glad we have five microphones. That's all I'm saying. Um, many thanks to our guests Kirsten Thompson and Stefana Scalzo for joining our conversation and sharing their insights. If we can give them a round of applause, that would be. And thanks also to the uh, to M Pavilion for their support for this event and to contributing to the culture of our city. And thank you all for attending tonight. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>